This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on the show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your story. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And this next story comes to us, well, Greg Hengler brings it to us, and actually the person providing this story is a listener in Colorado. Charles Tex Watson was just a young guy from Texas in 1969 when he came under the spell of drugs in Charles Manson and helped kill seven people. Watson attended Cal State Los Angeles but dropped out less than half a semester later, got a job selling wigs, and began living it up in the party scene of Los Angeles. One fateful evening, he was driving home and picked up a hitchhiker. In Watson's words... Hitchhikers were pretty common on Sunset Boulevard, and I pulled over to pick one up. When he told me his name was Dennis Wilson, it didn't mean anything to me. But when he said he was one of the Beach Boys, I was impressed. Wilson, the Beach Boys drummer, then directed Watson to his home on Sunset Boulevard in the Pacific Palisades area of Los Angeles. Watson was shocked when he pulled up. In the living room, Watson found a man sitting on the floor with his guitar, surrounded by six young women. He looked up, Watson later recalled, and the first thing I felt was a sort of gentleness, an embracing kind of acceptance and love. Another man at the house introduced them. This is Charlie, Charlie Manson. On August 9, 1969, under the direction of Charles Manson, Watson and three other Manson girls murdered pregnant actress Sharon Tate and four other people on Benedict Canyon. Manson girl Susan Atkins later recalled Watson waking up a victim in the living room whispering, I'm the devil and I'm here to do the devil's business. The following night, Manson accompanied the previous night's killers and supervised the murder of two more victims in Los Feliz. These murders are considered some of the most gruesome and shocking in American history. Tex Watson stayed in Los Angeles for almost two months before fleeing to Texas, where he was arrested. But it's those two months following the Manson murders where the story from our listener in Colorado picks up. Here's Patty Kingsbaker. This story happened in 1969. I had graduated from high school in Miami and moved out to California to live with my brother, who was living in Los Angeles at the time. And it was the 60s. My brother was 10 years older than me. So we kind of, you know, it felt like we had really grown up in different generations. I mean, our ideals. And he was a little uh, worried about me being a hippie and maybe going down the wrong path with him at this time time of my life. So I had been in Los Angeles for a year, um, had gotten to know a few people and, you know, was doing the things that kids in the 60s did. You know, one of the days I was with a friend of mine and I'm not sure why I was hitchhiking. Either I didn't have a car yet. It was kind of probably right after I got there. But we had hitchhiked from the valley, San Fernando Valley, over to the beach. And when my brother heard about it, he about lost his mind. And he was like, no, no, you were not hit. Anyway, so I eventually got a car. And, you know, it was a time when 
things were just more open and a lot of people were hitchhiking and, you know, we picked people up, you know, it was just what happened. But this one night I had been over in Malibu with some friends and I was coming back into the valley and I was coming through Topanga Canyon. And when I made the turn off Pacific Coast Highway, there was this guy, it was raining. It was like torrential raining. And there was this guy on the side of the road. And so I pulled over. A, he was out there in the middle of this rainstorm. And B, that's just what we did back then. So I pulled over. But as soon as he opened the door and got in my car, I just got this sick feeling. I, it, it was, I don't know what evil is. I don't know what it is. But I felt it. I was scared. I was absolutely scared. And I was like, I knew right then I hadn't made a mistake letting this guy in my car. But there was nothing I could do. He's there. So we're driving through Topanga Canyon. Now, I mean, and it is torrential rain. And there are mudslides on the road. I'm scared. Um, I'm having to go much slower than I would have gone through the canyon. I'm just thinking... God, get me to the other side of this canyon. And he was going to Reseda. I remember that. And I lived in Woodland Hills, which is another part of the San Fernando Valley. But I just wanted him out of my car. And he was trying to engage me in conversation. And I was just like, I finally just said, you know, I really can't talk. I can't talk. I really just need to concentrate on the road and my driving. I just can't talk. I was, I've never felt anything like that before. So when we got to the other end of Topanga Canyon, I just pulled over and I said, I'm really sorry, but I'm going a different direction. And um, I need to leave you here. But and he was like, okay, and he got out and there was no incident. I mean, there's nothing, nothing bad happened, but it was just that feeling just stuck with me. And I was just like, I, I, I didn't get it. It was a few months later that I picked up the paper one day, and on the front of the paper were the pictures of the Manson family. And the guy who was in my car that night was Tex Watson. Needless to say, I've never picked up another hitchhiker ever. That was enough. That night, just that feeling taught me not to do that. And there's been times I've passed people that I think, oh, but I just have never been able to bring myself to do it. Well, that's a heck of a hitchhiker story, picking up Tex Watson, one of the worst killers and murderers of all time. And she could feel evil. I don't know her walk or faith walk or whether she is a person of faith or not, but boy, we've all come in presence of evil. We know it. We can feel it. And all we want to do is flee. Patty Kingsbaker's story, a great listener's story, a really awful hitchhiker's story, here on Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and our next one comes from a man who's simply known as the History Guy. His videos are watched by hundreds of thousands of people of all ages on YouTube. The History Guy is also heard here on Our American Stories. In 1984, during a period of Cold War tension, a Soviet submarine collided with a United States aircraft carrier. Here's the History Guy with the story of the USS Kitty Hawk collision. It was March 21st, 1984, and the supercarrier USS Kitty Hawk was in the Sea of Japan. Commissioned in April of 1961, Kitty Hawk was the first of a class of three so-called supercarriers, upgraded versions of the previous Forrestal class. Capable of carrying 85 aircraft and with a crew complement of 5,624 officers and men, the Kitty Hawk had served throughout the Vietnam War and continued serving in the Western Pacific. In 1984, Kitty Hawk was the lead carrier and flagship of the U.S. 7th Fleet's Battle Group Bravo, operating in the Western Pacific and North Arabian Sea. She had been sent to the Sea of Japan in March to participate in Team Spirit exercises. Team Spirit was a joint exercise with the United States and the Republic of Korea, held annually from 1976 to 1993. The exercise was designed to evaluate and improve the interoperability of the ROK and U.S. forces. Team Spirit was intended not only to improve security cooperation and warfighting ability with U.S. and ROK forces, but to deter aggression and provocations from neighboring North Korea. Kitty Hawk, along with eight escort ships, was assigned to support Team Spirit 84. Aircraft of the Kitty Hawk, including F-14A Tomcat fighter aircraft, A-6E Intruder and A-7E Corsair attack aircraft, and E-2C Hawkeye early warning aircraft, had provided air cover for simulated amphibious landings by U.S. and ROK Marines. The operation, so close to the Soviet Far East, attracted the attention of the Soviet military. Kitty Hawk reported that over the course of the exercise, the carrier and its escorts came in contact with 43 Soviet aircraft, six Soviet surface elements, and one Soviet submarine. The submarine was the Victor-class submarine K-314. Designated Project 671, or Scorpion Fish, by the Soviet Navy and given the NATO designation Victor-1, the Victor-class was a series of nuclear-powered attack submarines designed to counter enemy vessels, especially American nuclear attack submarines. Although its exact armament at the time is still classified, the submarine was likely armed with both torpedoes and missiles, including SSN-15 Starfish nuclear-armed anti-submarine missiles. The Kitty Hawk was aware that it was being shadowed by the submarine since it had left the South Korean port of Pusan on March 19th. Such behavior was not uncommon, as an officer aboard Kitty Hawk explained to the New York Times. They play cat and mouse with us all the time. As part of their tracking, the U.S. had simulated destroying the submarine that has had units in a position where they could have destroyed the submarine in a combat situation 15 times. A former aviator who piloted a P-3B Orion anti-submarine and surveillance aircraft explained, Chasing Ivan was great fun. Serious business, but nevertheless great fun. The only problem was that when you caught Ivan, you had to let him go. On the night of March 21st, the Kitty Hawk was leaving the Sea of Japan, heading south to the Yellow Sea. As they deployed, the Kitty Hawk's escorts moved away, some 2.5 miles distant. This, in essence, left the Kitty Hawk blind to the location of the K-314. The carrier did not have its own sonar equipment, but instead relied on its escort vessels and aircraft to track the submarine. If it were a wartime situation, the submarine would never have gotten within the battle group, Pentagon spokesman Michael Birch explained in a UPI report. In peacetime, it's not required that the Navy keep 24-hour watch on Soviet submarines. Birch continued, These were peacetime conditions. 
It's not unusual to lose contact. Still, the pilot of the P-3B Orion explained that he and his crew knew that the submarine was in the area of the carrier, and in fact speculated that the submarine was attempting a maneuver where it tries to hide underneath the carrier to mask the submarine's sound, a technique which the pilot said generally doesn't work. But the K-314 wasn't trying to hide. Instead, the submarine, under the command of Captain Vladimir Ivsinko, had lost track of the Kitty Hawk. The most likely reason was simply the rough seas. An expert quoted in the Washington Post commented that it is a very confusing world beneath the surface, and observed that the Sea of Japan, which is relatively shallow and is teeming with commercial and military ships, is one of the noisiest in the world, confusing the sonar that submarines use to track other ships. There is an additional problem as well, as sonar, which tracks sound, leaves a notorious blind spot in the baffles behind a submarine where the noise of its own screws makes it impossible to detect other ships across an approximately 60-degree arc. Some sailors suggest that either the Kitty Hawk had made an abrupt course change or was engaging in a deceptive lighting exercise, so the ship would change its running lighting configuration to appear like the guided missile cruiser USS Long Beach. While such operations would have been intended to confuse surface ships, it may also have confused the K-314. In any case, having lost his target, Captain Ivsinko decided to bring the K-314 to periscope depth. When he looked through the periscope, he was stunned to see that he and the Kitty Hawk were on a collision course. He immediately ordered the submarine to dive, but by then, it was already too late. At approximately 10 p.m., some 150 miles off the coast of Korea, in rough seas and pitch black night, the nuclear-powered and armed Soviet submarine K-314 collided with the nuclear-armed carrier USS Kitty Hawk. Captain Rogers was on the bridge at the time, monitoring one of the ship's radars. He said, We felt a sudden shudder, a very violent shudder. The radar was designed to detect surface contacts and would have not have seen the still submerged submarine. There was no indication that anyone on the Kitty Hawk saw the submarine in the moments before the collision, and there likely wouldn't have been time to make a response if they had. A sailor on the flight deck felt the, the shudder too, explaining, That is something you normally don't feel on a carrier. A sailor in the mess room said his tray jumped up four inches. Others, however, seemed to barely notice, writing the shutter off as rough seas. One sailor described acting shipmates in a TV lounge if they felt something, and they insisted that he was crazy. On the P-3 Orion, they could hear a great scraping noise through their hydrophones. Sailors on the Kitty Hawk said the scraping noise lasted five to eight minutes as the submarine dragged along the keel. Evsinko was quoted on the website Russia Beyond, recalling that the first thought was that the conning tower had been destroyed and the submarine's body was cut to pieces. They confirmed that the periscope and antennas were still working when they felt a second strike on the starboard side. The collision could have been much worse. It was a glancing blow off the right side of Kitty Hawk's bow. The second strike that of Cinco felt was when the submarine's propeller struck the hull of the Kitty Hawk, breaking off a piece that was left in the Kitty Hawk's bow. The submarine was forced to surface. The Kitty Hawk immediately launched a pair of SH-3 Sea King helicopters to render assistance. The submarine appeared to have a dent or crease between its stern and sail. It was reported moving at a slow five knots towards the Soviet naval base at Vladivostok, while the guided missile cruiser, Petropavlovsk, steamed apparently to the submarine's assistance. The submarine did not answer the Kitty Hawk's offers of assistance, nor did it request any, and the Soviet government refused to comment. News reports at the time said that the Kitty Hawk detected no nuclear leak from the submarine and that President Reagan was apprised of the situation. The Kitty Hawk remained for approximately two hours in order to be available in case it needed to render assistance, but then continued on its course. Other U.S. Navy ships remained in the area. 
Well, the initial reports were that the Kitty Hawk had taken only superficial damage. Within a day, the Navy reported that the carrier was taking on water. The collision had ruptured a fuel tank, storing aircraft fuel, which was then becoming contaminated with seawater. The crew had to pump the fuel from the tank. The Kitty Hawk had a hole in the bow and a gash from the submarine's propeller below the waterline. Divers the next day brought up a piece of the propeller that had been lodged in the hull, and the crew had it mounted in a hangar. The Navy described the damage as minor, saying that it could be repaired at sea and was not significant enough to affect normal operations. Although crew members aboard Kitty Hawk speculated that there was a significant risk for the crew of the submarine after being rolled over in a collision, the Russian Navy has never provided information on the extent of the damage to the K-314. Several members of the Kitty Hawk and other U.S. ships' crews noted seeing welding sparks as members of the K-314 crew engaged in apparent repairs. The K-314 was not able to return to base under its own power and was eventually met by a seagoing tug. The report in Russia Beyond quotes Captain Evsinko saying that there was no loss of life aboard the submarine. The general feeling aboard the Kitty Hawk was that the submarine had taken more damage than the carrier, prompting jokes about the Kitty Hawk being the first anti-submarine carrier weapon. The crew painted a red submarine on the ship's island near the bridge to mark their victory, but the Navy later made them remove it. The Kitty Hawk underwent repairs at Subic Bay Naval Base in the Philippines, which crew members described as filling the damaged voids with concrete. During the repairs, it was discovered that some of the submarine's specialized outer coating had scraped off onto Kitty Hawk, could be analyzed along the USA Minor Intelligence Coup. The USS Kitty Hawk continued to serve clear into the next century and wasn't decommissioned until 2009 after an impressive nearly 49 years service in the United States Navy. She was the last oil-fired U.S. carrier to serve. Sometimes the story about what did not happen is as interesting as the story that what did. The fact that an event was, well, far less catastrophic than it might have been is history that deserves to be remembered. Indeed, and you're listening to The History Guy. If you want more stories of forgotten history, please subscribe to his YouTube channel, The History Guy. History deserves to be remembered. And by the way, imagine 5,624 men and women serving on the Kitty Hawk in the South Seas of Asia and in tough terrain, North Korea and South Korea still to this day, as we know, two very different nations because of our activities in Asia back in the Korean War. A great story, the History Guy's story, the day a Soviet nuclear attack submarine rammed an American aircraft carrier, here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our Rule of Law series, where we tell stories about what happens when the rule of law is present or absent in our lives. Our own Alex Cortez brings us this next story. This is the story of three residents of Winston-Salem, North Carolina. My name's Craig Richardson. I'm an economics professor at Winston-Salem State University. I'm uh, Matthew Bryant, and I've practiced law in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. My name is Paula Smith. 
I sell flexible benefit plans, so FSAs, HSAs, HRAs. I have a, a wealth of knowledge of HSAs and FSAs, so if anyone needs to ask me questions, <laughs> I can answer those questions. I was driving on my way to work, and I heard a story on my local NPR station about a couple named James and Phyllis Nelson. They bought this little dream home outside of Winston-Salem, Surrounded by hardwoods, looking out their bedroom window, they could see Pilot Mountain. And what they started to relay was something which was shocking to me, which was the fact that one day when they woke up in 1996, this was about 17 years earlier, they woke up to see the government workers driving stakes in their lawn. And they came out to ask what was going on, and they said, well, this is where a road's coming through a highway, a future highway. And it's the center line of the road and it's gonna go 200 feet on each side of these stakes. It turns out that that road goes right through his kitchen, right through the middle of his home. This whopping surprise arrived for Paula Smith, too. Bought the house that we, we lived in for 29 years in Winston-Salem, so at that time we didn't know anything about a highway coming through our neighborhood. There was a lot, of, a lot of years there that we were living not knowing what was about to happen to us, that's for sure. Now, when we hear a story like that, you know, I think we, we know that sometimes this happens. We have eminent domain, which means the government has the right to um, have uh, public projects and they buy out homes. But what gave the twist to the story was that the Department of Transportation was using a law passed by our General Assembly in the late 80s that allowed the department to make road plans that would restrict the development and use of property indefinitely until the department got around to acquiring and getting ready to construct the roadways. It turns out that there's something called the Transportation Corridor Map Act. What gave this a very unusual twist was that in North Carolina, unlike any other state, which also there are other states that have map acts, but unlike any other state in the United States, there was no time limit on when these roads could be built. In other words, the DOT, the Department of Transportation, could plan a road, could say it would happen sometime in the future, and essentially have carte blanche to decide whenever that road would be built. And these were called road corridors. Now why would the DOT do something like this? Well, the original intent was that this idea would save taxpayers money. The idea behind that was that if we designate your house in a road corridor and we're going to eventually buy your house out, we don't want you to put in a new kitchen. We don't want you to add a garage or add value in any way because that's going to cost taxpayers more money. So we're going to put you in this road corridor and we're going to say that basically any idea you have about improving your value property is frozen. Now for the vast majority of states, they have about you know, less than a year they have to act or the corridor goes away. But again, in North Carolina, there was no time limit whatsoever. This gave the power to the state a tremendous amount of power and it locked people like James Nelson in for years, if not decades. I had never really heard of this law, uh, however, they used it in Winston-Salem back in 1997 and restricted hundreds and hundreds of properties and didn't pay for it. And the owners were all sort of stuck waiting for the department 
and the department never really got around to funding that road and building it. So that had festered since the 90s through the 2000s until 2009. We put the house on the market in November of 2006. So we've redone all this stuff. It's now better than it was. Let's sell this house and let's go find something else we want to build. And the realtor comes out, puts the sign in the yard, she does her due diligence, she comes back and she says, about, literally about two weeks after the house had been on the market, she comes back and she says, I think you've got a problem. And she said, uh, your house is going to be taken by the, by the DOT. I said, oh, no it's not, it's, it's going to be like three or four houses down away from us. It's not coming through our yard, We're not, they're not taking our house. She said, Oh, yes, they are. They're taking your house. They're coming all the way to the corner now. And I'm like, oh, no, now what? She said, well, I have to take the house off the market. There's no other buyer for your house other than the DOT. She said, no one's going to buy your house knowing that eventually a road's coming through and you know, your only buyer is the DOT. I went, oh, okay, well, this is interesting. Now what do we do? And she said, you sit and wait. And I thought, this is not right. This is just not right. You can't just tell me I can't sell the, you know, tell us we can't sell our house. And she said, um, well, I, 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 in good faith as a realtor, cannot sell your house to anyone else. So we took the house off the market and we sat there and went, okay, now what? And one of Matthew's business clients was also a victim. D. Roth Oil Company, was sitting on a very valuable piece of property that was, you know, underutilized. It was basically they had to park used cars on it because for 20 years the department had not let it, or at that time about 15 years, had not let it get a building permit to do anything because it was trying to keep property prices down for its ultimate acquisition of the properties. And my immediate reaction on that day in late of summer of 2009 was that cannot possibly be the law. It, it struck me immediately as violative of your right to freely use your property. As long as it conforms with zoning, they can't stop me from doing something legally permissible on my property. I said, they can't stop us doing things legally. So I said, okay, well, let me figure this out. And in the span of a day or two, I figured that this kind of legal gimmick had been used because it's not too novel, you know, if you want to pay some less for something, just don't let anybody freely use it and the price will go down. They had done this thing 25 or six times throughout the state. Well, they had tried that in Florida in the early 90s and it had been almost immediately challenged and struck down as unconstitutional. And we said, well, they can't do this. The department will tell them to just give us the building permit or buy us and we'll tell them this is why. And uh, lo and behold, we went back and forth with the Department of Transportation and they had no interest in considering what we were doing or really undoing their practice of restricting these properties. And so they told us to just, you know, jump off a, uh, you know, the cliff. And I said, oh, we gotta do something about this. And the client, B. Roth, and the, uh, my partners all said, yeah, this is unconstitutional. Let's go figure out what to do. And we're listening to our Rule of Law series. North Carolina legislators and the DOT are clearly violating the rule of law by completely disregarding their own citizens' constitutional rights to own property and not have it taken 
without just compensation. That's the eminent domain clause. Eminent domain clause uh, these people were referring to in the story. All to make their own jobs easier. And by the way, to bring down the price for the so-called good of the taxpayers. Because again, if you can't negotiate with anybody but the Department of Transportation, how do you find out the real value of your home? What happens next in this story? Will the rule of law ultimately reign in North Carolina? We'll find out next after this break. This is Our American Story. continue with our American stories and the story of North Carolina's MAP Act that allowed the state to essentially freeze the improvement, development, or sale of private property indefinitely. This is our continuing part of our Rule of Law series. Let's return to one of the affected homeowners and landowners, Paula Smith. We talked to the DOT and they said, oh, probably within, you know, two years, three years, we'll be out there and we'll be, you know, buying your house and you'll be on your way. So 2008, we got a new governor in North Carolina. And Ms. Purdue had her own agenda, as most governors do. She had her own areas of the state that she favored, I should say. And the beltway around Winston-Salem went from being, I think we were like priority number four or five in the state, to being priority number 25. There was another group of environmentalists called the Friends of Forsyth. And the Friends of Forsyth then filed a lawsuit against the highway being built because of some environmental issues. There was some creek that had some kind of creature in the creek that was gonna be displaced and the creek was gonna be altered and so the environmentalists got involved. So that basically, from 2008 to 2010, the DOT was going, we can't do anything in the midst of this mess with the Friends of Forsyth. I think I even commented one time the Friends of Forsyth were no friends of ours because, you know, they were they were fighting against the highway being built. I'm sitting here with a house we, you know, we can't sell because the DOT has a map on us that says you're going to take our house, but we don't know when. It was just a mess. <laughs> it's just a total mess. Thankfully, the lawsuit was dismissed in 2010. And around this time, Paula met Beverly Reynolds, whose family business had a property that couldn't be expanded or sold because of this MAP Act. And she said, well, let's have a meeting. Well, she got Steve Trogdon, who was the head of the DOT, happened to be in Winston-Salem that day. So somehow or other, she got him to come to our meeting. I went out and put flyers in mailboxes and said, we're having a meeting at seven o'clock on this date. Please be present. You'll find out what's gonna happen. So we had a good 65, 70 people at that meeting. And of course, that's when Steve Trogdon stood there in front of all of us in 2010 and said, I don't know when we're ever gonna build your highway. I don't know when we're ever gonna take your houses, but you're, you know, you're in the map and we're gonna buy your houses, but we can't tell you when. 
it could be 25 years from now before we buy your house. I, I think we all just kind of, our mouths just dropped open and went, you can't stand here and say that. I mean, you just cannot stand here and say something to these people that this is their lives. This is their, you know, their land, their jobs, their, you know, and you can't just stand here and say that. He just, he just didn't care. I mean, he was, I guess he was trying to be honest with us, but he just, he just seemed very cold about the whole thing. The B. Roth Oil Company said, go find us some other plaintiffs and turn this into a class action, which we met with owners. They had a big group meeting. They, as you will hear, are as conversant as anybody on the face of the earth about the wrongs that the government can do when it thinks it's doing good for the public. And Paula Smith, who I think I may have heard her name before we showed up, Within seconds, when I said, does anybody want to do it? Boom, she's up at the front. We didn't hesitate. You know, again, I think I, after hearing the Mr. Trogdon guy at the head of the DOT say it could be another 25 years, my husband and I looked at each other and said, this is not right. We have to do something. And Matthew, he, he, he wanted somebody to, to join the lawsuit. And I believed in him. I'm not that kind of person that's going to sit around and do nothing. I sometimes get myself in trouble. Sometimes I say things I shouldn't say sometimes because I just, you know, believe that you've got to stand up for yourself. Paula and Kenny were always the face of the litigation through the class action. So we said to everyone, the more people we get, the more weight it has. And I said, you know, you don't charge up a hill at the opponent with five people. You send 500 people up the hill. By the time we started showing up at the appellate courts, we had 50 or 60 cases. Then the next time we visited, we had 70, 80 or nine, we had maybe 90 cases. Every time we showed up, we had more cases. And the Supreme Court and the judges and justices knew this. So yes, it, the fact that this was statewide and on such a large scale and not just a little one-off in some little town someplace, absolutely gave it gravity. I know I took my daughter, this might've been the Court of Appeals hearing that we went to in Raleigh. She said, I want to go to and see what this is about. And she was just amazed. I mean, she's like, this is really, okay, I'm going to say bad. This is really bad, you know, because of course she's a 20 something at that time. And she's like, this is really bad. And I'm like, yes, this is. I mean, it's kind of fun to watch. The, the courtrooms were packed. I mean, Matthew did a, a good job of getting people to go to the courtrooms and being in the courtrooms and letting the judge and the Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court see that, you know, these are real people that are being affected here. These people is sitting here in this room are the ones being affected. It always bothered me. So I go to these meetings at the churches or I go to the meetings at the court hearings and you look around the room and the majority of people, I get a little teary, I talk about this. You get, you get in these rooms and these people that are in these rooms are all in probably mid-60s to late-60s to 70s to 80s. These are people that have lived in their homes their whole lives or their family farms and things like that that the DOT had no, they didn't care. <laughs> they just had no compassion for these people whatsoever. And you'd hear that somebody passed away and then now their family, they couldn't finalize the estate because the DOT is holding on to their land and won't pay them out. And, you know, it's like, this is so sad, what they were doing to people's lives. And it was just wrong. I'm glad that we fought it. I was really happy to see that this case 
was ultimately brought up to the North Carolina Supreme Court. And the MAP Act was overturned in 2019 after more than 30 years of people enduring the MAP Act. I know a person who had wanted to retire in Florida was unable to sell their home and um, died in that home because they were stuck. The irony of the MAP Act is it was supposed to save taxpayers money by giving the state power to hold on to land until it needed to be developed and pay a lower price. But in fact, it is incredible in terms of how much this has backfired. Because homeowners have fought for their property rights, the property rights that are constitutionally guaranteed, have sued the state, and now are owed money that is many times multiple of the original home. And the lawsuits, according to one estimate, could cost the state over $1 billion. So this is an unfortunate road, so to speak, that the state took. Whatever they have saved, they are now having to pay for it. You know, it, it has increased their anticipated acquisition costs in today's dollars two or threefold. You know, the judge says these people are entitled to interest back to the date of the taking. So the date of the taking, I think, was for us was 2008. I think it was 8% interest, which was a nice, nice sum of money. And because they kept dragging this out in court, we got a lot more money for our house in 2019 than we would have gotten for our house in 2010. But it's because they just kept dragging it out and dragging it out and dragging it out. In my own backyard, there are 3,000 people who have property rights that is very similar to a country I've been studying for 15 years, Zimbabwe. In fact, they have the worst property rights in the entire country. And what I did was I said, well, let's pretend that this area outside of my city is a little country. Let's stack it up against a well-known property rights index put out by the Heritage Foundation, a think tank based in Washington, D.C., which has a very well-regarded property rights index. And what I did when I sort of put in, here's what the power you have to sell your property, here's the power to upgrade your property, here's the power to go to the bank, I found out that in fact, the people had property rights that were equal to living in some of the worst countries in the world. That would be places like Zimbabwe or Cuba. That's why I named the title of one of my articles, Is This North Carolina or Zimbabwe? how property rights in North Carolina deteriorated to the level of a third world country. What we had learned is that your average Joe does not like lawyers, does not like the government, loves their property, and would rather be left alone, at least as, uh, as a road going through their living room. So we had to overcome their distrust of lawyers and their distrust of the government and their distrust of the court system and they have all been rewarded with putting their faith in us, and that is a reward beyond the money we've made people. It's a professional reward that I gather most people don't get to have in their career, and um, it's been very gratifying. It's just been an ordeal from the beginning, and, and I, I guess that's why I got a little teary-eyed, because it's finally almost over, and it's like I can kind of let my emotions get the best of me now because it's, it's, you know, it's over. It is indeed over. And what voices we heard there. What a story about property rights. And by the way, our Constitution secures those property rights and not just physical property, intellectual property too. And it has changed the world.
and by the way that we have separation of powers and we can appeal a legislature's actions to a court and have those rulings enforced. That is why the Constitution matters, folks, and it will always matter, and why it's litigated today. Some people want more control over our property, and some people don't. And what a story, and what a rule of law story. And by the way, if you have stories like it, send them to OurAmericanStories.com. These things happen every day. It was a land grab by well-meaning bureaucrats thinking, hey, why not? Why not? Great storytelling by Alex Cortez, as always. The rule of law, North Carolina's MAP Act, no longer, thanks to some active, committed citizens and some great lawyers. This is Our American Stories. tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between. And we'd love to tell your stories, too. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org, OurAmericanNetwork.org, and we'll put them up on air when we get them. And this next story is about Benjamin Franklin. And you're about to, well, learn more about one of his most famous publications. Here's Robbie. You've probably heard of Poor Richard's Almanac. You definitely know the effects of eating an apple a day. But where did it all come from? Here's Benjamin Franklin impersonator, Mitchell Kramer. Well, it really is purely practical. You know, he's got a printing house in Philadelphia, and he's got a rival, Andrew Bradford. It's the early 1730s, so he's had his printing press for a few years. He's printing other people's almanacs. Um, The one that's really specific is Thomas Godfrey, because Thomas Godfrey is an actual friend of his. And he gets into this weird fight with Godfrey, and it's really a silly fight. Head librarian of the library company, Jim Green. Franklin and Godfrey were close friends, so close that he invited Godfrey and his wife and children to live with him. This was all fine, but Franklin realized he needed a wife. Now, it happened that Mrs. Godfrey had a relative who was looking for a husband, and she decided to act as a matchmaker. She brought them together. The girl's parents approved, and they began to court seriously. But when the parents found out how much money Franklin wanted as a dowry, they withdrew their support. He suspected them of trying to trick him out of paying it by leading him on till he was too engaged to pull back. Franklin got mad, broke off the engagement, and quarreled with the Godfreys, who moved out of his house. Even so, Godfrey continued to publish his almanacs with Franklin until, in July of 1732, he published a story in his newspaper that pretended to be fiction, but was really a relation of exactly what had happened with Mrs. Godfrey. It took this thing that had been a private affair and made it completely public. Godfrey was so embarrassed that in the fall, when it came time for another almanac, he took it to a rival printer instead. Andrew Bradford. So he just does it to sort of, well, I, I'm all, I was all set to print an almanac, but I lost the contract, so I'll just write one myself. He does that first one, and, he, and he, it's not great. Um, and he gets it out late, 
most of the almanacs come out in November. His his first printing doesn't come out until the end of December. He makes a mistake. He transposes two months. So October appears as September, and September is in October. So it's not even that good. But he does something that makes it really popular, and it's really clever, and it becomes sort of the key to, to poor Richard's success, to this persona, which is the one-page preface at the beginning of it, in which he introduces this character of poor Richard. Franklin impersonator Brian Patrick Mulligan. The plain truth of the matter is, I am excessive poor, and my wife, good woman, is, I tell you, excessive proud. She cannot bear and had threatened more than once to burn all my books and rattling traps, as she calls my instruments, if I do not make some profitable use of them for the good of my family. So, one of the appeals of poor Richard and his wife Bridget was the ongoing relationship. People would come back year after year to read about what's going on with poor Richard. It was similar to following a soap opera, because what he does is he says, in the persona of poor Richard, I'm an astrologer. So he's going to use this to make fun. He's going to use this persona of an astrologer, this old, poor, silly astrologer, to make fun of astrology in his almanac. So he says, to prove my worth as an astrologer, I'm going to make a prediction. That prediction was the death of rival almanacker Titan Leeds. And that would have been it. People think it's funny, and it would have just been at the end of it, except the following year, Titan Leeds, the man whose death he has predicted, makes the terrible mistake of engaging in it, of putting in his almanac, I'm not dead. Which is, of course, exactly what Franklin wants. He's created a fake rivalry. <laughs> and um, and Titan is, this Titan Leeds has completely fallen for it. And so in his next issue, he says, you know, I, are you sure you're not dead? Basically. And I mean, I'm pretty sure you're dead. He sort of uses the almanac to create a persona, to start a joke, and to tease his competitors, all in this little one-page preface. And that's what people love, and that's what sort of becomes his almanac's best feature is this little preface that he creates. When Titan Leeds actually dies, he says, well, I was just off. Because eventually Titan Leeds dies. Five years after he's predicted his death, Leeds dies. And they write in the almanac, that Le in Leeds' almanac, that Leeds has died, but he's provided the printer with enough information to keep printing almanacs for years to come. So Franklin says, oh, well, you see what happened? He died years ago, and they've just been printing the almanacs, just as I said. And then he writes a letter that purports to be from Titan Leeds, written to poor Richard, who, of course, doesn't exist. But poor Richard claims that the letter comes to him in a dream and that he wrote it himself. And, of course... The printer of the Titan Leeds almanac can't do anything about it because Leeds is dead. So he's now actually taking the character of this other almanac who he's been in this little rival, this fake rivalry with, and he's now usurped him and taken him into a character of his own. 
And when we come back, we'll continue with the story of Poor Richard's Almanac. And when you're talking about Poor Richard's, you've got to talk about Benjamin Franklin. By the way, we did a terrific hour on the war in Ben Franklin's home. And it was a story about, well, Franklin's separation from his son. And his son, William, was the royal governor of New Jersey and sided with the crown. And, of course, Franklin sided with the patriots. And in the end, the son ended up in prison in solitary in Connecticut in a gulag, a a gowl of of horrendous nature, and ultimately exiled to England, the two never to have reconciled. And when we come back, more American history, poor Richard's Almanac, the story here on Our American Stories. Benjamin Franklin's Poor Richard's Almanac, the characters he's created, and the aphorisms that we quote even today. Remember, the persona of Poor Richard is the writer, the author, the almanac creator, whereas Franklin is the printer. And so Richard will say things like, after the, it starts selling well, his, his character, his persona of Poor Richard will say, People ask me why I still go by Poor Richard now that my almanac is selling well, and I have to tell you that the fact is my printer gets most of the money, but don't, you know, get angry at him. He's a great guy, and he deserves it. But, of course, this is Poor Richard talking about Franklin, so he's now, this is one of the things people really love, is when he starts to get into conversations about himself from a third-person point of view. And then he does it in one issue, he goes even further... And he writes the preface, not as Poor Richard, but as Poor Richard's wife, Bridget Saunders. And Bridget Saunders, like many of Franklin's women personas, is even more interesting and in many ways more fleshed out as a person than Richard Saunders, than Poor Richard. So now, in one preface, this is one of the funniest of the prefaces, he is writing as Bridget Saunders talking about Richard Saunders and she mentions something that Richard Saunders said about Franklin. So he's now sort of taking it to a third point of view. It's very clever. It's, it's again, it's this idea of satire as in we're all in on the joke. And because we're all in on the joke and because it's, it's from an American point of view, it's this common man's point of view as opposed to trying to be haughty and literary, which is what people did then. This idea of the writer as being sort of above it all is very typical, but Franklin's characters are just the everyman. Obviously, by the time the final printing comes along, it's a very different story. The one-page preface is now become a 12-page really essay onto all to its own in the 18th century idea of essays in which you know they would be standalone little books that people would buy and eventually that final essay will become his best-selling standalone little book but in those early days it's really about 
I think he must have had a lot of fun with it. And then, of course, he also happens to be a really good writer. So he's able to take the little aphorisms, the little proverbs, and just make them better. Make them more clever, make them read better. Make You know, when it needs to be a little longer, he'll make it a little longer. When it needs to be really short and brief, he'll make them shorter. No, you know, time is money. That's a great little proverb. Um, and then, of course, when he needs to add a joke especially rhyming jokes. He'll throw in some rhymes or sing songs. The reason Poor Richard's Almanac is still known today is because of these maxims, uh, because they're not uh, topical jokes about current affairs. They're timeless and practical maxims, you know, such as keep your eyes wide open before marriage, half shut afterwards. And your high school English teacher's favorite. By failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. And he stuck them into the almanac. But he did something else that was even more unusual, which is he put them in and amongst the calendar information, the weather predictions or um, all this all this kind of weather data. Um, he scattered the words, the aphorisms among all that and made them just a little bit hard to find. It was a sort of Where's Waldo type of thing. So early to bed, early to rise could take up a whole four-inch column with the words scattered, a few in this line, none in the next two lines of, of astrological symbols, three words in the next line, so he got it all in. Which means at first you wouldn't even notice the aphorisms, but once you caught on and noticed there was one of them on every calendar page, or two, or three even, it became kind of a game to find them and to read them. But Franklin's proverbs became a joke. You know, people made fun of all the proverbs. They, they teased him for it. Um, it was considered a very low form of literature. But he sees it as, you know, something that, you know, is a sort of relatable to the common man. And yeah, on one hand, he's doing that on purpose to make himself you know, sell more almanacs. But on the other hand, he really believes it. He can just be sort of positive and, and use these proverbs to allow ordinary people to, um, you know, to maybe improve their life. Because he's very practical in a lot of ways. There's this great quote of his late in life where he says, I know he's so quotable, what is, I have tried in everything I have undertaken to serve the benefit of mankind. And he totally means it. He's completely honest about it. He really wants to make the world a better place. And he actually finds himself with the, the ability to do it. Poor Richard's almanac was getting a buzz. It was this new and interesting, witty thing. In future years, the reputation of the almanac spread, which was fairly unusual. Almanacs were typically printed for a particular latitude, but that didn't seem to stop poor Richards. It was found everywhere. While not the top-selling almanac, it had reach that few could rival. Its legacy spread throughout the colonies and even beyond. Its infamy crossed the Atlantic and found its way to France, making an appearance in the American Revolution. King Louis of France gave a ship to our Navy commander, John Paul Jones, and the ship was called 
Bonhomme Richard. Following the time of the American Revolution, three other ships have borne the name Bonhomme Richard, or Goodman Richard. I believe in some form or other I shall always exist. Franklin has been remembered sometimes by ship and sometimes by t-shirt. You know, the, the one that's on every t-shirt, the way they put it on the t-shirt, beer is proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy. But of course, he never said that. And the original quote is from a letter. He's in France and he's writing in French. And he makes this little joke at the end of the letter. He says, well, I know that God loves us because he created the fruit of the vine. But he's saying it in French, and somehow that quote is... It, you see it on T-shirts all the time, but it's always a misquote. While Franklin initially railed against indulgence, his love for the finer things in life eventually came out. Well, he stops making fun of being fat. In the early um, Proverbs, I mean, specifically talking about the little adages, the little aphorisms, he definitely makes talks a lot about health in the early issues because he was very health conscious. And of course, as he gets older, he becomes much less health conscious and stops making fun of that. The one I really like is, um, in beer there is truth, in wine there is wisdom, and in water there is bacteria. <laughs> I think that's a funny one. Another one that's a favorite of mine is, a countryman between two lawyers is like a fish between two cats. You know, genius is nothing more than a greater aptitude for patience. Dr. H.W. Brands. But with Franklin, you could always see that he had his tongue in his cheek and he had a wink in his eye. And so when people would read these, they would realize, ah, okay. It was not exactly the Saturday Night Live of that time, but it served some of the same purpose. It was designed to entertain even as it educated. And what great storytelling about poor Richard's almanac. And my goodness, what wit, what wisdom, and what a mind that Franklin had to create such an entertainment property, self-promoter to the end, and just a sort of quintessential American entrepreneur. And at best, this is what our public intellectuals look like. Very different than the heady European type. Always in the end, bringing it down to earth. And in the end, sort of making fun of himself if not directly, most certainly indirectly. And when we come back, the last installment of the story of poor Richard's Almanac. And again, if you have suggestions about American history, a story you think we should be telling, send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. We consider our listeners, our moles, our researchers, our, our folks in the field. That's what you are. You're our hands in the field. Send us, again, your suggestions for anything having to do with American history, the side of a story that we should know but don't, whatever it might be, send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. When we come back, the rest of the story of poor Richard's Almanac here on Our American Story.
we continue with Our American Stories, and we're back with the end of Benjamin Franklin's 25-year publication of Poor Richard's Almanac and its legacy. But after 25 years, Franklin decided it was time to call it quits. He was on a ship crossing in the ocean, and he had a lot of time on his hands, so he did a very clever thing. He must have brought copies of all 25 almanacs with him, and he went through them and copied out all the aphorisms that he thought were most useful, as opposed to being just funny or snarky, the way so many of them were. He grouped them all together and arranged them in a speech, which later was called The Way to Wealth. But in its first form, which was in the 1758 almanac, it, it had no title at all. It was just the preface. And the preface was signed, Richard Saunders. And it starts by saying, I have heard that nothing gives an author so great a pleasure as to have his works respectably quoted by other learned authors. And this in itself was funny to people who had been reading poor Richard's prefaces for so long and thought he was sort of a dope. Richard Saunders goes on to say that he was in the market the other day and there was this guy called Father Abraham. So Father Abraham gives this speech in which he strings together various adages of poor Richard. And these are the ones that pertain to how one will succeed. The sort of things that any young man who wants to make a success out of himself, the way Benjamin Franklin made a success out of himself, should follow. Richard says, you can imagine how gratified I was. He quotes, uh, he quotes the whole speech. If you'll have my advice, I'll give it to you, says Father Abraham, for a word to the wise is enough, and many words will not fill a bushel, as poor Richard says. The joke here is Richard is thrilled to have his works, as he's now calling them, being quoted by other learned authors, or rather this old man who is haranguing the crowd in the marketplace. And they just go one after another, as poor Richard says, as poor Richard says, as poor Richard says, like the blows of a hammer after every one of the dozens of aphorisms. And at the end of it, poor Richard says that everyone listened very respectfully and then went home and forgot all about it. So the way to wealth was a kind of recycling of the aphorisms, but it was also putting them to a new purpose. Franklin actually did feel that his aphorisms could benefit people, that some of them, the ones that had some moral weight to them, should be preserved. So he brought the best of them all together and gave them a frame with Father Abraham. The original almanac was, was pretty ephemeral, but it, almost immediately it was republished separately under the title Father Abraham's Speech. And in that form, it became a sort of viral bestseller. It was reprinted um, several times in the 1750s and 60s under that title. And then, it, then Franklin sort of took it back and, and revised it, pruning away most of the aphorisms except the ones that, that dealt with industry and frugality. And then he, was, he reissued it under a new title called The Way to Wealth. And in that form, it became a worldwide bestseller. It was translated into 20 languages and had been published in almost every printing press in Europe and America. So no one reads Poor Richard's Almanac anymore, but The Way to Wealth is still in print. It has been ever since the 1770s. So part of the reputation that Franklin got for being a preachy, penny-pinching nag was because of the popularity of this new Way to Wealth, which 
um, in its emphasis on industry and frugality, um, was really quite different from the original that began in the Almanac in 1758. Over the years, generation after generation of American school kids would be introduced to Poor Richard through Father Abraham. And if you read Franklin, if you read Poor Richard simply through Father Abraham, you would tend to think that this is a pretty serious guy. And in fact, certain Americans who would become famous took issue with the idea that they had to read Father Abraham and the Maxims of Poor Richard, and one was Mark Twain. And Mark Twain loudly complained in print about how much he hated Benjamin Franklin because the Franklin that he was introduced to was the Franklin of this early to better, early to rise stuff. And the young Mark Twain didn't like the idea of that at all. Benjamin Franklin did a great many notable things for this country. It is not the idea of this memoir to ignore that or to cover it up. No. The simple idea of it is to snub those pretentious maxims, which he worked up with a great show of originality, of truisms that had become wearisome platitudes as early as the dispersion from Babel. But Franklin was pitching it to a different audience. And so, and Mark Twain, Mark Twain sort of understood that there was more to Franklin. You know, there's a wonderful portrait print engraving of, of Franklin that was made in France in 1777, where he's wearing his famous bifocals and his fur cap, which had become his trademarks in, in Paris and made him instantly recognizable to everybody in Paris. In the picture, uh, the bifocals are, are a little bit crooked on his nose, so one eye is looking through one part of one lens and the other eye is looking through the other part of the other lens. So his eyes are a little bit distorted. And that print has become a symbol, not just for me, but for a lot of people trying to figure out what Franklin was up to. With this bifocal vision, you see him and he sees you in two very different ways at the same time. And so, yes, he was this great and powerful man who was making, really making the world a better place. I mean, he was winning the American Revolution for us. But he's also somebody that was very approachable, a solid citizen with a well-run life, a very pleasant, almost smug kind of guy. His manipulation of his own image toward the end of his life, when he was our ambassador in France and then later as the, a framer of the Constitution, was very, very skillful. I mean, there's nobody in that age who was as good at the sort of PR aspect of, of being a public person, except possibly George Washington, who did it in a totally different way. So I guess that's why it's very dangerous to say, this is what Franklin was trying to do, or this is how he wanted us to see him. I think you always need to put on your own bifocals when you look at Franklin. And great job by Robbie on that piece. And we'd like to thank the contributors as well, Franklin historians and impersonators Mitch Kramer and Brian Patrick Mulligan, and H.W. Brands, the Jack S. Blanton Senior Chair in History at the University of Texas at Austin. And that last voice, and that last voice you heard was Jim Green, head librarian of the Library Company of Philadelphia, America's first successful lending library founded in 1973 by Benjamin Franklin himself. And we'll close with just a few aphorisms, uh, some of the best from Poor Richard's Almanac. 
Industry pays debts while despair increases them. Diligence is the mother of good luck. One today is worth two tomorrows. Women in wine, game and deceit make the wealth small and the wants great. Having been poor is no shame, but being ashamed of it is. Virtue and a trade are a child's best portion. Love your neighbor, but don't pull down your hedge. Necessity never made a good bargain. Words may show a man's wit, actions his meaning. All things are easy to industry, all things are difficult to sloth. Many have quarreled about religion that never practiced it. The way to be safe is never to be secure. A child and a fool imagine twenty shillings and twenty years can never be spent. The wise man draws more advantage from his enemies than the fool from his friends. And by the way, I love that one that has to get mentioned again that one of the contributors mentioned earlier. A countryman between two lawyers is like a fish between two cats. Poor Richard's Almanac. In a way, it's Benjamin Franklin's story told through a window, perhaps his masterwork, his greatest conceit, and perhaps the greatest reflection of his personality and the personality of his home country, his new country, and the new nation he helped birth. Poor Richard Almanac's story here on Our American Stories. And we continue here with Our American Stories, and our next story comes from Mark Henderson, the owner of Mississippi's first craft brewery, Lazy Magnolia. Out of all the states in the Union, Mississippi ranks dead last in the number of craft breweries. But before Mark and his wife, Leslie, there were none. Here's Mark with the story of how he helped bring good beer to Mississippi. And by the way, you're going to hear sounds of a brewery in the back because, well, we're doing a story about a brewery. I am the head peon at Lazy Magnolia Brewing Company. I'm married to the boss and brewmaster, uh, my wife, Leslie Henderson. So my wife and I are both engineers, and she was looking to buy a gift for me one Christmas. Uh, so this would have been year 2000, and uh, she, she bought a homebrew kit from a company actually in the Midwest called Midwest Supplies, and it was like the grown-up version of a homebrew kit, right? I mean, it was glass carboys and, you know, hygrometers and thermometers and, you know, all the fancy equipment, but not terribly specialized or expensive, but, you know, solid start. You know, a couple of weeks after Christmas, I opened everything up and laid it all out on the stove and cooked up a batch of beer and had a great time. But eight weeks later, during Mardi Gras, we were all standing around a table eating crawfish, and uh, we popped some beer that was absolutely palatable. <laughs> I mean, that was... It's the best way to describe it, right? It, it was, it was, uh, it was okay. Nothing to write home about, but it was decent enough. A couple weeks later, Liz and I, no kids. You know, there's really nothing going on in the winter, and we took all the equipment back out and uh, started brewing a batch of beer. 
got about halfway through it, and uh, Leslie came through, and she goes, that's not right. You're not doing that right. That's wrong. You missed this step. You didn't do this. You didn't hold this for enough time. The temperature of that was of one degree Fahrenheit off. And she just laid into me, and I uh, was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> and she's like, you're not taking this very serious. I'm like, no, I'm not. I am drinking beer on a Saturday and cooking some up. And she looks like, hey, look, if we're going to make good beer, we need a wort chiller. And I was like, we? When, when did we show up exactly in this? I said, what What in the world is a wort chiller? She's like, look, here it is. And she showed me the picture in a magazine. So you need to go to Lowe's, get all the parts to make this. I will take over the brewing. I joke, but it's, it's largely true. That, that is, uh, that's the last batch of beer I ever brewed. And she came home one day from work and said, I want to brew beer for a living. And I said, are are you nuts? And she goes, is that relevant? I mean, it, it tells you a lot about our relationship is that uh, you know, she's, she's kind of in the, the fire component, right, to get things done. Um, and I, I'm running around trying to figure out how to make her dreams come true. But she decided, I mean, that, I mean, she was a chemical engineer working at a high-performance polymer plant. She started off as employee number four, and the company built up to 50 people, and it wasn't as much fun at that point for her. And she said, I want to do this. So we started the process in 2003. Big question then was, uh, was it even legal? Because there were no breweries in the state of Mississippi. There were uh, a couple of brew pubs had opened up along the way. The law had changed for brew pubs to allow those in 1999, but there had never been a production brewery. And everybody knew that it was illegal. And it took a lot of time and a lot of energy and a lot of people telling me no, and a lot of people were reinforcing that it was illegal. To eventually make it all the way up to, head, to the head of the ABC in the state of Mississippi, Alcohol Beverage Control Board, right? This is a guy who runs a half of, it's a half a billion dollar business in the state of Mississippi, right? And I'm talking to this guy and I'm like, hey, I, I'm actually trying to brew beer in the state of Mississippi. And he goes, you know, that's illegal, right? I'm like, I've been told, but can you just show me where it says that in the law? And he goes, yeah, yeah take it, give me 30 minutes, I'll call you back. And three hours later, he calls me back and says, I can't find it, but I know it's in there. And I was like, wait a minute, you're, you're the head of the ABC. I mean, you should be able to quote me scripture and verse, right? I mean, paragraph and line on uh, why this is illegal in the state of Mississippi. And he goes, yeah, but here's the problem. I don't actually regulate beer. I was like, excuse me? He goes, yeah, I regulate alcoholic beverages, which constitutes wine and liquor in the state of Mississippi. Mississippi does not define beer as an alcoholic beverage. I don't regulate that. You need to talk to Ronnie Lynch, the Mississippi State Tax Commission. And I was like, okay. So I called up Ronnie Lynch, the Mississippi State Tax Commission. I said, Ronnie, I'd like to brew beer. And he goes, okay. I'm like, what, what, I'm sorry, what did you say? He said, yes, I, you can do that. I'm like, Ronnie, are you sure? He goes, yes, I am positive. You got to fill out a bunch of paperwork. You got to get a background check. You got to do this, right? You gotta get a bond, and you gotta show me your federal brewer's permit. I was like, well, that seems all pretty reasonable. I said, Ronnie, how come there are no breweries in the state of Mississippi? And he goes, I don't know. You're the first person to ever ask. We had to start off selling beer directly to distributors. We didn't have any access to retail sales. Never in a million years would you set up a system that that was the right way to do it. I mean, you always want brands to prove out that they are valid and good brands, right? That they have consumer pull, right? That they have quality, that they have the flavor profiles or the 
right? Whatever it is, the, the marketing components, what the consumer wants. And then you go, oh, well, once we figured all that out, then you would push into distribution. That was not an option for us. We had to be in distribution on day one. And I start to realize that I have to be engaged politically in order to change some things. Prior to 2012, when we got the law changed for tap rooms, it was illegal for us to actually even give away beer. The law uh, that we negotiated through allowed us to give away up to six, six ounce samples. And you couldn't sell any beer on site, you couldn't sell any beer to go, you couldn't, all you could do is you could charge money for a tour and as part of that tour, let people have up to six, six ounce samples. This is as soon as we did that, five breweries, new breweries opened up in the state of Mississippi. Because now they had a way to actually communicate directly with consumers, right? They had a way to, to create brands and create awareness and find out you know, what worked and what didn't work. One of the things I learned along the way is that you can't trust Southerners to tell you the truth when you've given them something free. Southerners are inherently polite, and if you give them something, right, the first things they'll say is like, oh, this is so nice, right? They may turn around and spit it out right behind you, but to your face, they'll say that, oh, yes, I loved it, it was nice. What I've learned is, is that it's not until you actually uh, bring money into that equation do you get an honest answer out of a Southerner. At the same time, a consumer organization called Raise Your Pints was working on changing the alcohol limit. They wanted access to more beers. The change that I was working on very specifically was to say, I should be allowed to make anything, though, right? If it's legal for sale in California, I should be able to make it here. So, you know, I was pressing on the manufacturing side, and Raise Your Pints was there pushing on the consumer side. And that became kind of the two voices that then could go together to the legislature and get some change. Um, and it took many, many years. So uh, in 2012, we got the manufacturing limit removed. We've got the consumption, what's legal for sale in Mississippi, raised from 5% by weight to 8% by weight. There are two states in the union that use uh, alcohol by weight as their critical measure, uh, Utah and Mississippi. And the only reason that I can possibly fathom for this is that both would prefer not to have any alcohol in the state, and by using ABW, you get to use a lower number. It meant that we had to learn how to pack a whole lot of flavor in not much alcohol. And it's like anything else, right? I mean, there's, a, there's an ancient old movie, I'm hesitant to even bring it up, but it was called Conan the Barbarian with Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? And, and you have this kid, right, who, who faces all kinds of adversity, right, and is, you know, put on a wheel and pushes the wheel, right? That adversity tends to make you stronger. And so you have to learn things, you have to learn to work around it, right? And so we learned how to pack a lot of flavor into a little bit of alcohol. It's not a skill that a lot of people had to learn. So I, I tell people that one of the great things about our brewery is, is that we have a female brewmaster. You can go to a lot of breweries, right? And, the, and they're male-dominated, right? There's a bunch of guys running around with really big, awesome, amazing beards, right? And they're pounding on their chest, and they're going, ah, I make the best and the biggest and the meanest. And you're like, yeah, but does it taste good? I mean, does, is, it, is it the best flavor? Having a little bit of estrogen running around in a brewery helps keep the testosterone in check. And it's, and it's about balance. And, and having that diversity of opinion when it comes to flavors. And engineers question everything. And people who know engineers know that engineers do not care what the rules are, but they want to know what all the rules are. And if you got, if you know what the rules are, you can figure out a way. I mean, you, you go, hey, look, I got speed of light, I got you know charge an electron, I got 
gravity. I still want to build a bridge. How do you do that? And, you know, I was the guy who was willing to listen to a hundred people say, you know, that's illegal, right? And get told no time after time after time. And as a child, I had worked in, my mother worked in retail. And I developed an appreciation very early on. And every time someone says no, that puts you one step closer to the yes that you're looking for, right? It's, it's, it's not, no is not no. No is just not now. That's not what I'm looking for. That's, right, there's always some hurdle. All you got to do is figure out what that thing is and you can get over it. And we've been listening to Mark Henderson, and he's one half of a remarkable couple who started the first craft brewery in the state of Mississippi. And the brewmaster, the head of this organization, is clearly his bride. And he goes out there and just pushes, gets it out there. He's the cheerleader, and she's the force. And she's the one, well, she's the brewmaster. They had no kids. They had nothing going on. So they decided, what the heck, let's make a beer. And when they were told no, they just kept pressing. And no meant maybe to him. And maybe turns into yeses. And I love that he talked about the fact that these rules actually force them to make a better beer. And that adversity, well, we can overcome adversity. He had to learn how to pack a lot of flavor, he and his bride, into a little bit of alcohol. And thanks, Monty Montgomery, for the story. Our Hillsdale grad doing great work here already. The Lazy Magnolia Brewing Company, their story here on Our American Stories.